You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. In 1968, the Congress decided that American working men and women should get more weekends off. And an easy way to do it was to consolidate holidays into Mondays wherever possible. Thus, George Washington's birthday on the 22nd of February became the third Monday of February whenever that occurred. The Uniform Monday Holiday Act didn't change the name of Washington's birthday, though it merely made it a Monday. Now, we call that holiday generally President's Day, and officially in half the states. In 1968, the Uniform Monday Holiday Act did include a provision to combine Washington and Lincoln's birthday, Lincoln's birthday being on the proximate date of February 12th. Lincoln's birthday is a state holiday, places like Illinois, and many people supported joining the two days, particularly because the sponsor in 1968 was a House member from Illinois. But House members from Virginia disagreed, and that part of the law was dropped. So when the law passed and a 1971 executive order was issued from President Richard Nixon, it was for Washington's birthday to be celebrated on the third Monday of the month. It also shifted to dates of Columbus Day, Memorial Day, Veterans Day. After there was criticism, in 1980s, Veterans Day was actually moved back to November 11th. But in moving the holiday, you took away the anchor of connecting this holiday to George Washington. And by the mid-1980s, Washington's birthday was known to many Americans as President's Day. Some states still fall at that. Virginia keeps the holiday George Washington's birthday. Alabama uses President's Day to celebrate Washington and Jefferson's Day. Noble as it is to give people an extra day off, attach it to a weekend so that they can go on vacation, as good for the economy it might be to have an extra day of retail spending. I think there is one sacrifice in all of this moving of holidays that's occurred, and that is to focus on George Washington, not just as a general, but as a person that influenced American politics. Washington was a master of what Adams called the gift of silence. He was completely in control of what we might now call body language. Senator William McClay of Pennsylvania was invited to a White House dinner when Washington was elected president and wrote about it in his diary. It was, he thought, the most solemn dinner I ever ate at. Washington, with great formality, drank to the health of every individual by name around the table, and everybody else followed. But then after that, host function done, Washington remained dead silent. Well, McClay figured that because the ladies were still at the table, but then they left, and he figured now we would get down to business. But the same stillness prevailed, McClay said. Some talked, a few jokes were told, but Washington drummed on the table with his fork. McClay was baffled, but Washington knew what he was doing, or better, what he wasn't doing. He had been in office for four months. The Constitution had just been ratified. He was a new president. Everyone wanted to know whom would he appoint? What would he do? It was best 
to say nothing. And that was the skill that Adams most admired. Benjamin Rush said, Of all the people he ever met, including several lords and nobles and leaders of other countries, Washington was the only one he knew when asked a question he did not want to answer, which simply not. Nor were attempts of men to draw something out of Washington very successful. He would take his own time and consider input. One man who put a hand on Washington's shoulder got the evilest eye he had ever seen in return. Albert Gallatin, later Secretary of the Treasury, when meeting with George Washington about a road uh, from Virginia into Pennsylvania that George Washington was going to help finance, was listening to a group of landowners in the area, including Gallatin, about where it would be best to build the road. After hearing all the input, Gallatin was impatient and interrupted Washington to say he knew where best to draw the road and end the discussion. He got back from Washington a cold, hard stare. Later, of course, George Washington concluded that Gallatin was right and actually tried to hire him. Here's what Jefferson said about him. His mind was great and powerful, without being of the very first order. His penetration was strong, though not so acute as that of a Newton, Bacon, or Locke. It was slow in operation, being little aided by invention or imagination, but sure in conclusion. So I made an odd discovery while answering a question, and that discovery is that among the Bill of Rights, there are certain items that George Washington was not so thrilled with. Unfortunately, we don't know which ones. I received a question on Quora where you know, I do answer questions, and you can find me there, you know, Quora.com, Q-U-O-R-A slash Bruce Carlson dash three. I guess there's other Bruce Carlsons that beat me to the Quora line. I was asked, did George Washington ever make any comment in regards to the Bill of Rights, uh, in regards to the Second Amendment in specifically? And so I answered this way. Um, George Washington did comment about the Bill of Rights as a whole when it was shown to him by James Madison prior to introduction to Congress. So let's get our timeline straight here. So the Constitutional Convention happens in 1787, and they meet in Philadelphia for several months, you know, a good chunk of the year, debating various amendments and taking votes by state delegation about items that are going to end up in the Constitution. They completely write the Constitution, separating into various committees, like the Committee of Detail and the Committee of Postponed Matters, uh, Committee of Eleven, sometimes it's called to decide on some of the more tricky points. But one thing that they don't do, all right, they leave Philadelphia having signed this document without a Bill of Rights in it. There are some delegates that want a Bill of Rights, just a, a, an establishment that uh, that certain rights are guaranteed to the people. It's just not seen as necessary by the people who actually crafted the Constitution. George Washington is president of the Constitutional Convention, and he's presiding over it, really not saying a word during most of the proceedings. However, it's not true that he did not comment at all, because at the very end, after most of the business was concluded, and we're talking about real hot topics like 
Are you going to have a senator? You know, is this, is the representatives and senators going to be proportional based on the population of the state? Or are you just going to have a certain amount of representatives per state? Are we going to do things unanimously? Washington's silent. He speaks at the end of the convention only to bring up the issue that he felt there weren't enough representatives per tens of thousands of people. I believe it's 40,000 in the original constitution. They're just about to sign. And Washington says, why don't you make it 30,000? It might help to quiet some opposition to the constitution. They actually have to take, you know, they actually have to scratch out the 40,000 in ink and replace it with 30,000 per his suggestion, which of course, especially who it was coming from, everyone accepted. So right there, you know that he and the other members of the Constitutional Convention who supported the Constitution, because there were members of that convention who left and never signed it, did not see the need for a Bill of Rights. One of them is James Madison. Whenever there is an interest and power to do wrong, he writes to Thomas Jefferson in the same year, 1788, wrong will generally be done, even if a Bill of Rights is in place. Repeated violations of these parchment barriers have been committed by overbearing majorities in every state. To Madison, at least at this point, the best way to ensure liberty is just by keeping the branches separate. You have the president doing their thing, the courts doing their thing, the Congress doing its thing. And that's going to ensure domestic tranquility and liberty, and no one's going to be a tyrant because of that. Having some statement or preface that people have these rights, you know, he just didn't see as important. And at least in this period, he never really did. So when he's introducing the Bill of Rights into Congress, this is after the states had approved in various ratification conventions the Constitution, a real important one being Virginia. And Virginia and Massachusetts and a few other states approve the Constitution with the condition that rights be added to it. You know, that in and of itself didn't guarantee that there was going to be a Bill of Rights at all. So so the reality is the way that the first Congress is looking at it, particularly those who are Federalists, who really don't want a Bill of Rights, the way they're looking at it is, hey, we followed the procedure. We had the convention. This was the ratification procedure. The, the required group of states um, approved the Constitution, it's the law of the land. The fact that states made statements as they ratified was not part of the original procedure anyway. You don't need to pass a Bill of Rights. You don't need to add any amendments to the Constitution. James Madison, both personally and politically, he's getting advice from Thomas Jefferson, who very much favors um, a Bill of Rights. Virginia has a Bill of Rights. Here's what Patrick Henry, who had opposed the Constitution, said. A Bill of Rights may be summed up in a few words. What do they tell us, meaning the supporters of the Constitution? They tell us that our rights are reserved. Why not say so, Patrick Henry asks. Is it because they will consume too much paper? So you've got major figures in Virginia, political opposition to James Madison in the form of Patrick Henry and his cohorts who want a Bill of Rights. Madison sees the light, and so... One of his first acts as a congressman is going to be pro to propose 10 amendments to the Constitution to get it out of Congress and then have the states vote on them, which he does. Before that, 
he shows it to George Washington, who at this time he's politically and personally friendly with. Washington responds, I see nothing exceptionable in the proposed amendments. Wow. (laughs) Nothing exceptionable. It's kind of a very neutral reaction to something that we consider so sacred, right? But he goes on. Some of them, in my opinion, are importantly necessary. Others, though of themselves, in my conception, not very essential, are necessary to quiet the fears of some respectable characters and well-meaning men. Upon the whole, therefore, not foreseeing any evil consequences that can result from their adoption, they have my wishes for a favorable reception in both houses. Yeah, that's about as much of an endorsement that you're going to get from George Washington. Again, you know, kept things very close to to the vest and, and all of that. You can see a very neutral statement from him, but he finds nothing exceptionable in them. So what you can definitely read into that is that the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, George Washington was not opposed, at least, to any of them. But again, and this is something that I wasn't really aware of till I dug in a little deeper trying to answer this question, he delineates two types of amendments there. There are one group that he actually thinks are necessary. Now, I'm going to assume that the First Amendment is one of them. I really, you know, speech and and the like, just like we all consider that so essential today. And then it may be something like trial by jury and cruel and unusual punishment because Washington as a Virginian and who rose up in rebellion was against some of the coercive acts and what they called the Murder Act, uh, where Americans could be tried on British ships or in London. Um, so I'm going to guess that those are among them. But then he delineates another group of amendments that are like, I don't really see them as necessary, but it seems like it's going to quiet the fears of some men, so fine. He's probably got Patrick Henry in mind. Unfortunately, we don't know which ones he liked and which ones he didn't. I mean, I can make guesses as I did, but that's where that's where it is. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. But he did get a pass on them, and he did endorse them. And his endorsement helped to bolster Madison's case to get the first Congress to act on these. Yes, there was reluctance to do so. Federalists in Congress feel like there's no need to do this bill. Specifically in regards to the second, I don't have a comment from him and anything that appears in a Facebook meme or something like that, uh, Washington endorsing the Second Amendment, there's no written letter where that occurred. Of course, you have to consider that in history, so much happens behind the scenes. And this era of history, we're getting letters and we're using notes and things like that. But, uh, you know, it's imperfect. And there were so many discussions, for instance. I think, like, Washington's a great figure for this. Like, where Madison was writing all the legalese down and doing a lot of letters and 
Jefferson was was doing a couple letters a today a, a day, you know. Washington, I think a lot of the discussions occurred at Mount Vernon, and a lot of the Constitution was rehearsed and in the Virginia plan, the proposal initially for the Constitution was rehearsed and discussed either between Madison and Washington or Washington and others at Mount Vernon before they even got to Philadelphia. It would be great to have a tape of those discussions, right? But we don't. So we don't really know which ones he favored. We don't know his opinion on, say, like the Second Amendment or something like that. You do see Facebook memes that go around, and particularly uh, some of them are just outright fabrications, that quotes that he didn't say. There is one that is true that uh, in Washington's first State of the Union, he said, a free people ought not only to be armed, but disciplined. And that's usually all you get of that quote if it's on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. MountVernon.org expands the quote, and when expanded, Washington's opinion is a little different from what it might seem. The quote is, A free people ought not only to be armed, but disciplined, to which end a uniform and well-digested plan is requisite. And their safety and interest require that they should promote such manufactories as tend to render them independent of others for essential, particularly military, supplies. So that whole quote is much more complex, and you can see that he is supportive of the general concept of the people bearing arms, but it gives the purpose as militia and the warding off of foreign power, not being dependent on, say, French muskets, as during the Revolution they were. Let's make arms here. But I also see in there uniforms, well-digested plan, and armed but disciplined. So that's the quote. Now, this is just an obvious point. George Washington was commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. It was common practice in that army for men to show up with the muskets. And the beginnings of the Continental Army are indeed the Minutemen of Massachusetts. That's really where the bulk of the numbers from that Continental Army start. It's Connecticut, it's Massachusetts, and Rhode Island, New England companies. Then Virginians were added as well. He's no stranger to individuals owning arms, keeping arms at home. You know, it's common to have the musket at home. Then show up in your hunting shirt when the militia is called out and it's time to fight. You also have the example of Shays' Rebellion, which Washington expressed alarm about and, and asked for, for updates on, you know, was not too happy that it was going on, that there was a rebellion in western Massachusetts after the revolution had happened, a rebellion against a democratic government. And the Whiskey Rebellion during his presidency, where he puts down a similar rebellion, a refusal to pay tax officers and the targeting of and harassment of tax officers and the thumbing the nose at the United States authority, Washington marches in with an army to put down the rebels and capture those. So I think you see a complexity that isn't often part of this um, Second Amendment debate that Yes, someone like George Washington had experience with with people at that time owning arms and bringing them to war when the militia was mustered and mobilized. But improper use of those arms was something that he obviously demonstrated he was ready to put down. 
Here's what uh, David O. Stewart's excellent Madison's Gift book says about Madison and Washington and the Bill of Rights. The story of the Bill of Rights has little drama. Madison's speeches were measured, not heroic. The congressmen who approved it were impatient to address other matters. The amendments achieved one of Madison's primary goals. North Carolina joined the Union in November 1789. Rhode Island followed grudgingly in May 1790. Both states ratified most of the amendments. These amendments, Rhode Island's legislature announced in late September 1789, have already afforded some relief and satisfaction to the minds of the people of this state. David O. Stewart says about Madison, he had used Washington's vast prestige and support, sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit, to propel the calling of the Philadelphia Convention, to win ratification of the Constitution, to push the legislation establishing the new government, and to secure the Bill of Rights. Both men could look back with satisfaction over the road they had traveled together. In trying to figure out this mystery of which amendments, you know, Washington liked and, and which ones he didn't, well, one of the documents really crafted by his hand with the help of, of Hamilton, of course, but uh, Washington had a role, had the key role in writing his farewell address. And that gives you an inkling into what he considered important. You would think there'd be more discussion of rights, but it's actually only the word rights is only mentioned in two places in his farewell address. Both of them are not really that related to, well, let, let's get to it. Um, here he says, It is indeed little else than a name where the government is too feeble to withstand the enterprises of faction, to confine each member of the society within the limits prescribed by laws, and to maintain all in the secure and tranquil enjoyment of the rights of person and property. So he references that there. And then there's one other mention. But even our commercial policy should hold an equal and impartial hand, forcing nothing, establishing with power so disposed in order to give trade a stable course, to define the rights of our merchants and enable the government to support them. So the second mention to rights in his farewell address is the rights of merchants. Interwoven as is the love of liberty with every ligament of your hearts, no recommendation of mine is necessary to fortify or confirm the attachment. And that's the way Washington normally played it in his public statements. He considered that, oh, these, these decisions can be made by other men and that you, the people, are good enough to govern yourselves and you don't need a statement from me about your rights or your liberties. So he doesn't pick out like which of these rights in the document he thinks are important and which ones he doesn't. I mean, for all we know, it could be that he really didn't think there was a, a need for a, a statement about the freedom of the press. But we'll leave that to speculation. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. There is a common tale in history that Washington was merely a disinterested referee at the convention. But it's more complex than that. We know that the convention went well beyond their specific instructions from the Confederation Congress. They were just to amend the Articles of Confederation. That's it. They went well beyond it and started a new government. What is not talked about is the cover that the appearance of the nation's most famous citizen gave this action that they were taking. Not only is it true that at any time, as the chair, he could have objected to what was going on and clearly didn't, it's also clear that he wasn't interested in doing so. In a statement at the convention, he urged delegates not to settle, but to hold themselves to a higher standard of what system would be best for the nation. Let us raise a standard to which the wise and honest can repair. If to please the people, we offer what ourselves disapprove, how can we afterwards defend our work? Constitutional scholar Glenn Phelps examined Washington's role at the convention and found that he was a bit more involved than commonly is expressed. For instance, though he spoke little at the convention, he did not abstain on votes. He was a member of the Virginia delegation and voted along with Madison, James McClurg, Mason, and the other Virginia delegates. With Virginia, he cast nine votes, and most of them, Phelps found, were on the side of a powerful executive and a strong national government. As two examples, he thought, for instance, that Congress should have an override of the president's veto, but only with three-fourths of the House and Senate, not two-thirds as it currently stands. He wanted a stronger presidential veto. He also thought it essential that the states have nothing to do with the management of the Western lands, the future of the country, that that would be left to the federal government alone. His influence was direct, therefore, but also indirect as well. Pierce Butler noted that in thinking about the presidency during that convention, all eyes were cast towards Washington. This allowed the states to go along with stronger powers for an executive than otherwise they might have. With Washington there, they figured at least they had two terms or maybe even the life of this man to have a solid leader that they could trust. Washington had a great influence on the United States as we know it today. President and the Congress sit in a city that is named after him, but more than that, was developed under his design. There were attempts by Philadelphia, by New York, by Trenton, by York, Pennsylvania, several other cities to get the national capital in these pre-existing cities. Washington's drive was one of the most important factors to establishing the federal city called for by the Constitution, that there should be a separate city, the District of Columbia, so that no one area has control over the proceedings of the American government. He worked heavily in developing the plans for the federal city. He had a great influence, but often he's seen as no more than a two-dimensional character because of the distance of time and the importance placed on other presidents, notably Lincoln. Herbert Hoover said of him in a preface to a book about Washington, unfortunately, 
Washington for many years was interpreted to his countrymen chiefly through warped biographies written upon a great deal of legendary assumption. Until very recently, no readable biography of George Washington in reasonable compass made him stand for what he was, the most potent human and intellectual force in a firmament of American intellect. Hoover's fire is no doubt aimed at Parson Mason Locke Weems, a preacher who wrote an 81-page biography of George Washington, including the famous story about the cherry tree that Washington had to tell his father that, indeed, he was the one who chopped down. By the time Parson Weems died in 1825, his book had gone through 29 editions. Parts of his stories, including the cherry tree story, were pulled into something called the McGuffey Reader, which was used by school children throughout the 19th century. There's some debate as to whether the cherry tree story happened or not. Some of these apocryphal stories have a real purpose. And it is very true that people at the time of Washington would have considered him to be supremely honest and someone of great trust. So whether he cut the cherry tree down or not, the message of the story is, is accurate. Former President Hoover's criticism may be valid. It is true that in present times, especially with a flood of Lincoln books, the interest in the Civil War right now, documentaries, and the recent movie, of course, Lincoln becomes the more animated figure. We now know him better as a human being and even as a skilled politician. And Washington remains that too far removed icon with the gray hair and the false teeth. I think a greater understanding of his actions, his skill also as a real human being and real politician in addition to a general, and an understanding of his role as the guardian of the Constitution and champion of a national government would elevate our debate a bit when a discussion turns to those, quote, founding fathers. Sometimes that's just seen as a few fellows who wore trifold hats and said that the, that government that governs least governs best. Well, it's not a quote from Washington, and it doesn't exactly mirror his sympathies. The Jeffersonian viewpoint of a small government was very popular. Jefferson became president. His party ultimately got the reins of power in all branches of government, but it wasn't the only viewpoint. More Washington in our politics would be more instructive as to how our politics should go in the modern era. Here, the man known as the first son of Columbia was a believer in America, in a union of all the states. He was also a believer in not blindly following party, politicians serving for a time, and then letting go of that power, in considering multiple points of view before making a decision. And when you also consider that he was the first president, so had to go without a guidebook, and other presidents could use his example to point to, but he had to make it up as he went along. Yes, even if we do still give our workers the Monday off, I still think the 22nd, George Washington's birthday, is worthy of some celebration, at least note. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics. Twitter is MyHist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. And if you do like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening.
The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. 